Hi, this is State Delegate Mark Corman, and from Wisconsin Avenue in District 16 to Pratt Street in Baltimore to the boardwalk on the Eastern Shore and everywhere in between, Conduit Street Podcast is the go-to source for news about Maryland politics and policy. Welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here today with Brianna January. Brianna, thank you so much for joining us today. So happy to be back on. And Brianna, you write a great piece on the Conduit Street blog, The Looming Child Care Cliff, and I'll set this up for you. We're talking about a whirlwind of federal pandemic era programs and funds winding down. We know that. This includes child care stabilization funds, and states, local governments, and advocates say that the loss could have major impacts for the economy. So, Brianna, what is going on here? Talk a little bit about what you wrote about on the blog. Yeah, that's exactly right, Kevin. Um, our listeners will will remember that in 2021, the American Rescue Plan Act, ARPA, made nearly $40 billion in federal emergency aid available specifically for child care. That's billion with a B. So those funds went to a variety of uses from helping providers pay for rent during the pandemic to helping American families, lowering their tuition rates, um, also increasing wages for for workers to help attract and retain more to the industry, which has always had a challenge with with keeping workers. Um, But Kevin, that support is set to end on September 30th of this year. And You know, when I looked into it, researchers are saying that when that does end, about 3.2 million children nationwide could lose their daycare spots. Roughly 70,000 programs will close nationwide and 232,000 caregivers will lose their jobs, all because of this pandemic aid ending. Yeah, this is obviously a major concern. And, you know, it's not just this program that's ending, but we know that federal funding coming from the pandemic, a lot of those programs are winding down. And so mm-hmm. now states are going to have to figure out how to supplement. But Brianna, even before the pandemic, the childcare industry was struggling. And believe me, I know this very well with two kids, the, the average annual cost to send one kid to daycare is about 10 grand. That can run oh. as high as 20,000 in some states. And these providers are always in jeopardy of losing their employees for higher paying jobs too, right, Brianna? That's That's why the Kerwin Commission, in developing the blueprint, made early childhood education a priority. And of course, they did this before the pandemic. But even then, we know early childhood is a priority and it can really change outcomes across the board for kids. There's no doubt about that. Right, right. These issues aren't new to the pandemic, but they were really, really exacerbated by the pandemic. And Kevin, as you mentioned, yeah, Maryland's blueprint for the future, the big landmark, once-in-a-generation um, educational reform law, it, it really does prioritize early childhood education. It's it's the Blueprint's very first pillar out of five. Um, and so that pillar does include things like the gradual but eventual universal access to pre-K for all three- and four-year-old children in the state. And, I mean, as our listeners can imagine, doing so is is a monumental undertaking for both the state and for local school districts. And let's talk about that. So again, we know the benefits of pre-K expansion, but why are so many stakeholders now worried about the impact of expanding pre-K on the childcare industry writ large? Again, we know it's important, but this could have Mm -hmm. other effects, right? 
Yeah, yeah. Well, the blueprint envisions a collaborative system. So public-private partnerships to expand pre-K, you know, with more three and four-year-olds moving on from daycare and childcare to pre-K itself. Um, And then, of course, we would need more childcare facilities to enter the pre-K market to help meet those blueprint goals. Which, you know, that all makes a lot of sense. The public sector cannot do this on its own, for sure. Um, But there are some stakeholders that are concerned that there might not be enough providers or seats for, uh, you know, infants to three-year-olds if childcare um, providers are now entering the pre-K market. Obviously, you know, they have capacity with with, um, staff, like we just mentioned, with facilities. And so if they're now taking on pre-K kids what happens to basically babies to three-year-olds. So that, that makes sense. Moving private providers into pre-K services, obviously other childcare services may suffer from a lack of providers. So if more children ages three and four attend pre-K in public school, that could decrease enrollment at childcare centers and family childcare providers. And of course, without right. business, they, they could shut down. And it's funny, I remember sitting through all the Kerwin Commission meetings and there was a lot of faith put in private providers stepping up to work with the public schools to accommodate this pre-K expansion. And I, I remember thinking, wow, there, there are a lot of eggs in one basket here. And I hope that the private providers are ready to take this on. Then we started hearing that there weren't enough private providers. And now it sounds mm-hmm. like even if there are enough, making the shift to pre-K could wreak havoc on the industry overall. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. I mean, that is a great summary of where we're at. I, I will note that there still aren't enough providers for some jurisdictions. And, you know, Kevin, that's going to get worse if this national clip happens when when the pandemic aid does end in a few months. Um, and I don't want to scare our listeners, but, you know, new reporting from the Century Foundation actually predicts that the end of federal aid for Maryland will will result in about 69,000 Maryland kids losing their childcare seats. Um, over 2,300 providers and programs closing and lots and lots of childcare jobs that are expected to be lost as well, around 4,600. So, you know, we're talking numbers, but we're also talking real Marylanders, real kids, real families, real jobs. And those are certainly scary numbers. And as you mentioned, there are people behind those numbers. But the good news is Maryland has tried to get ahead of this. Certainly lawmakers saw this coming. So talk a little bit about that and what Maryland has done in recent years, again, to try and get ahead of this and to make sure that by expanding pre-K, we're not you know, forcing other centers to close. And then also people understood that this federal money was going to dry up. So there had to be a plan. So what did the legislature do in recent years to address this issue? Yeah, absolutely. Leadership really did take note before the pandemic and into the pandemic that this is outside of even just the blueprint and the and the priorities for early childhood education, that this industry in Maryland is struggling and needs help. Um, so we've we've enacted substantial measures to stabilize the industry, um, especially post-pandemic. And for example, during the 2022 legislative session, um, Mako actually supported a huge childcare stabilization packet, which did package, which did ultimately become law, um, and that included everything from providing financial aid for existing licensed providers and grants to incentivize new providers to come into the market. Uh, it included things like hiring and retention bonuses for childcare providers and their employees. Um, and then after after we did exhaust 
some of those federal stabilization grants, which in all, in total, were around $285 million in federal funding, which is huge, um, the state did decide to extend the child care stabilization grant funding and added about $50 million in state funding to provide additional relief to providers, knowing that this is an ongoing challenge and not one that's going to going to go away with, with just one-time funding and resources. Brianna, this is a national problem. So talk a little bit about what other states are doing, because this is affecting everybody, not just folks here in Maryland. Yeah, several other states are also addressing the issue. Some have notable programs that I think it's worth our listeners tuning into. A lot of examples are in forms of financial aid. Um, So we have things like block grants in Michigan that provide new employers and new providers entering the market, Um, some, some seed funding. Uh, Minnesota invested about $750 million, which is a huge figure um, for just adding and retaining child care workers. Um, and then we have some state aid programs for low-income families uh, in Montana that are kind of similar to ours in Maryland. And this is really interesting, Kevin. Uh, in New Mexico, voters actually went to went to the, the polls and recently approved a constitutional amendment making child care a constitutional right for families in the state. Um, and actually to, to fund that effort, because now that it's a right and everyone should have access, um, the state is actually taking a percentage of money from their oil and gas leases to help fund um, that new constitutional right to to child care, which is, which is really an interesting, interesting take. I, I'd be interested to see if other states follow suit. Um, but yeah, so states are trying to get ahead of this. Obviously, though, this is an all-hands-on-deck effort. It has to come from locals, the states, and the federal government all prioritizing this in, in a variety of ways, um, as, as we've talked about today, from workforce development to uh, square footage and, and just proper facility and capital space, um, all the way down to, to helping families actually be able to afford the service. Right. And and to put another spin on this, I mean, I know that some researchers predict that the loss in tax and business revenue from the so-called child care cliff will likely cost states $10.6 billion with a B annually mm-hmm. in economic activity, right? As millions of parents would have to reduce their hours or leave the workforce altogether to care for their children. So we know on top of the stress that that creates, on top of the problems it creates for families, states are also looking at a huge revenue dip if this does come to fruition. So those parents are projected to lose a collective 9 billion with a B annually in earnings. So this really hits you from a lot of different angles and certainly has ripple effects. And and Brianna, this will be a big topic of discussion at the Mako Summer Conference. Tell us more about that. (laughs) You cover the education portfolio for Mako and you have been working to put together a fantastic general session, which will be one of the showcase sessions of the conference. Yeah, I, I should have known that you'd find a way to sneak in a summer conference promo, <laughs> but but you're right. Yeah, I am planning a a general session um, for our summer conference in Ocean City in August. Uh, the the session's titled "Embracing Without Spacing: Pre-K Expansion and Early Childhood Education." Um, we'll basically examine the the capital challenges and and opportunities of pre-K expansion in the state. We're talking about things like facility space and funding. Um, so very tangible uh, opportunities and challenges. And we'll have a great expert panel. We have folks um, like the executive director 
of the Interagency Commission on School Construction, Alex Donahue. Um, we have some really interesting program directors that are partnering with, with local school districts and local government um, throughout the state to do some interesting private-public partnerships on pre-K expansion. I, I think it's just going to be a great time. We're, we're also um, lucky to have Senator Alonzo Washington be our moderator. And, you know, he's become a great leader on education issues, especially early childhood. So I'm really looking forward to it. And it's it's definitely a must attend for for folks coming to summer conference. Yeah, it certainly sounds like it. And because counties share funding responsibility for the state when it comes to education in Maryland, I certainly expect a packed house. This has trickled down to the local level for sure. As a reminder, the 2023 MAKO Summer Conference is at the Roland Powell Convention Center in Ocean City from August 16th through 19th. And this year's theme is Where the Rubber Meets the Road. We're talking about things that county governments do. We provide all these services. And, you know, on the on the in the wake of a recent election, I think it's always important to remind folks county government really is where the rubber meets the road. So you'll be able to find more information about the conference on the MAKO website. I can tell you that registration is through the roof. We're seeing a it lot is. of interest this year. So I, you know, I can't wait. I think it's going to be a great show. We will link all of that in the show notes. But Brianna, this was sort of a, a quick run through, but I think we covered a lot of information, really got to the core of this problem and how so many things are coming together to create quite a vexing issue. Any closing thoughts from you before we wrap this up today? Just that this issue isn't going anywhere and county governments are definitely major players here. So listeners should keep an ear and an eye on on my work and that of Mako because it's it's going to be a big one. Absolutely. And again, you wrote a great piece on the blog, sort of a deep dive looking at this issue. So we can we can sort of consider this a companion to your article. And of course, we'll link all that as well. But we will leave it there for today. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please go ahead and subscribe. That way, all of these episodes will be sent directly to the device of your choice. You can also follow along on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and then, of course, the Conduit Street blog. But for Brianna January, this is Kevin Canale signing off, and we will talk to you soon.